This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, there are a lot of financial pressures on people at this time of year. You're looking ahead at the holiday season. You're thinking of all the things that you have to buy. And t- survey after survey shows us and tells us that the majority of Canadians want to spend less this year on presents and gifts, that they want to keep to a budget, that they have these financial concerns. And we know that in January, that's when the bills start to come in, right? And then we find out if we really did stick to that or not. So it's also not the best time of year to hear about things that are going to cost you more money. And that's why I think the city of Vancouver story is getting such a lot of attention today. It is that in their draft budget proposal, so this is what their initial proposal is for next year, that there is a proposed 8.2 residential property tax hike for next year. That's a big number. In fact, it is the biggest number proposed in more than 10 years at the city of Vancouver level for an increase in residential property taxes. So yeah, you can bet people are going to be upset. Also because for the vast majority of people in the city of Vancouver who are fortunate enough to own some property, your assessment actually went down in the last year or two, meaning your property is worth less, but now you're going to be potentially paying more. Now, the argument on the city side is that they're going to fund more police officers and more firefighters, and they've got all these things that they have to do. And ironically, at least one councillor is blaming the previous Vision Vancouver councillor, saying that their increases weren't enough, and now they have to catch up, which... I'm sure will be news to a lot of Vision Vancouver councillors out there as well. So we are going to talk to Councillor Adrian Carr about that coming up. But for our hot question of the day, we wanted to ask you, if this were you, like, how would you feel about that? What they're saying is there's this proposed 8.2% property tax hike for 2020. And that's going to fund more police officers, they said, and something like 30 more firefighters as well. So how do you feel about that? If your property tax increase, they're saying, is to fund more resources, more police officers and firefighters, do you say, good, okay, more resources? Or do you go, that's bad, I can't afford that, no matter what that money is going to? Check out our hot question of the day. You'll find it online. It's at simisarah 980 or at CKNW. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. And remember, this is a bit of a trial balloon here as well. This always happens. They float this big number. They're testing the waters to see how upset people get. I'm guessing people will get pretty upset. They have a public meeting, December the 3rd, by the way, if you're interested, and then they settle on a number lower than that, and then we're apparently we're supposed to all feel lucky that they didn't go with the original 8.2% property tax hike, right? That's usually the way it goes, but we want to know, are you okay with increases if it means more police officers, more firefighters, and things like that? Let us know, and this applies to people everywhere. Where Whatever city you live in, your council is going through this same process as well. No doubt they'll be coming to you with some increases and in, proposed increases in property taxes as well. So how do you feel? Good, more resources? Bad? No, I can't afford that. Let me know. Again, drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. And coming up next on the show, we will speak with a Vancouver City Councillor, Adrian Carr, who represents the Green Party. Why this proposed tax hike? What are we going to get out of it? And does the city think of any other ways of saving money? Affordability. It is an issue for everyone. So given that we all know that, we have talked about it extensively the last few years, it is a surprise, I think, to hear what the City of Vancouver is actually proposing right now. Despite a decrease in the value of people's properties over the last year or two in their draft budget for 2020, the City of Vancouver is proposing a 9.3% hike in taxes and fees. That is a big number, almost 10%. This is part of their, as I said, draft 2020 budget and five-year financial plan. They're going to consider this at a council meeting coming up on December the 3rd, so next week. So that 9.3% number, where does that come from? Well, it's a combination of an 8.2% property tax hike, that would be for residential customers, and a 9.5% utility fee hike. And it also includes a 0.5% tax shift from business to residential properties. So anyway, you cut it, we are talking pretty big increase. In fact, the biggest the city has proposed in more than 10 years. 
And keep in mind, as I mentioned, that for most homeowners, I would say their property value went down uh, over the last two years or so. So why do this? Why now? And do they really think that people can afford this? And I know if you're like me, you also think, well, wait a minute, what about cost savings? Have they tried to rein anything in in order to offset some of these costs? And where's all this money going to go? We had a chance to speak with Vancouver City Councillor Adrian Carr, who represents the Green Party, about this. And here's what she told us. Well, Councillor Carr, thank you very much for joining us. First off, let's talk about this. What, what, where are we at at this point in the budget process? Uh, well, at the beginning stages in terms of uh, the report is now the draft budget is now printed. It's now online. Uh, people can look at it and, uh, and, and deliberate and you know, be preparing their questions for council, etc. And councillors are preparing their questions. And believe me, I haven't quite finished all the whatever 700 pages of it yet. Um, and, and it's coming to council on December the 3rd. Um, at that time, people can come and speak to it. And uh, then we will go through a deliberation, deliberation process which could take many council days. Right, because I think the first thing that strikes people right off the top is they see this headline of a proposed more than 8% property tax increase. Why? That is such a good question, and let's face it, nobody likes tax increases. Um, But on the other hand, Sammy, nobody likes to see the homelessness, the opioid crisis, the inability to find uh, an apartment or home that you can afford, um, the the street trees dying, overcrowded facilities, deterioration of of roads, um, not being able to tackle climate change the way we should. So really, this budget is about making sure we put the money in place to handle what are really emerging crises. And in part, um, because over the last 10 years, the budget increases have been, and the tax increases have been um, not as high. I remember Vision crowing about, you know, we've got amongst the lowest or one of the lowest tax increases in the region. Well, that doesn't work if you're not putting the money into keeping the actual essential services um, and the infrastructure of the city going. And now this council has to deal with it. Okay, but what infrastructure are we talking about here? Because you mentioned the opioid crisis. We already have a special levy applied to our taxes for the opioid crisis. So where is this money going to go? Oh, a big a big chunk of it is actually in the uh, um, the basic staffing and essential services. From that point of view, fire and police, for example, um, police in particular, big part of the budget um, for ten years. Um, they've they've been underfunded to the extent that both fire and police have had fewer people on the ground, you know, dem- meeting the the service demands um, than they've they had ten years ago. Only this year, because there has been a bit of increase in terms of our police budget over the last couple of years and now the fire budget have we started to see the restoration of numbers this year this this year yeah um police actually got to the same number of employees as they had 10 years ago that's despite the costs um uh rising the demand rising, the number of people in the city rising. So, I mean, that's just one example. I could give you a lot, but um, the point about infrastructure, I think, is really critical because we are meeting climate change demands on us. Um, The increased water from winter storms, the necessity of actually doing something about our storm sewers, which are spewing a lot of rainwater with the pollutants in it into the oceans. We have to restore those, in my mind, quicker. and in terms of housing and affordable housing, I mean, the, I mean really, this government um, or the city government 10 years ago said they'd end homelessness, and it didn't happen. There weren't the necessary investments. So we are, as a city now, putting more money into affordable housing, putting more money into tackling climate change, offering in this coming budget, for example, money uh, to people who own buildings to be able to retrofit them and get off gas and oil and really reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Right, but you're saying a proposed, more than 8% increase, whereas the, the majority of people in BC and their pro- are in Vancouver, their property taxes, the assessments actually went down last year. So their houses are worth less. And now you're talking about raising taxes more than 8%. Where are people supposed to get the money for this? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I realize it's tough, but you kind of have to look at it as, 
you know, if you don't put the necessary repairs into your home, you're going to have to end up paying way bigger bills in the end. And that's what's happened for 10 years. Um, so we do have to put the money into keeping, in, into making sure that we have the infrastructure in place, that we have the housing in place, that so we don't have the crises that we do. Um, now, the cost to an average homeowner or condo owner is a kind of maybe, maybe a better way to look at it on a per month basis. The cost to the average condo owner is going to be about $7.50 a month. And, I mean, that's what, a really, you know, like a drink, a, a two, two coffees. For the, a homeowner, it's about seventeen fifty a month. Um, and I think that when you put it into that perspective, this is not a lot to pay for making sure that we don't have to pay even more and bigger amounts in the future. Have we looked for any efficiencies, though? And I know this drives people crazy, is that we automatically go up, up, up every year. But what is the city of Vancouver doing to save money? Well, that is a really good question. <laughs> and I have asked that question because, as I say, we're at the beginning of the process in terms of um, asking questions of staff based on the budget that we've got, the draft budget. So I did ask staff the question, um, are there any services that w- or programs that we could consider as um, uh, less important or less vital at this point in time? I haven't got an answer back yet on that, but I do think it's a good question to ask. So what happens now? This is a draft budget, as you mentioned. Will people have a chance to weigh in with their thoughts? Absolutely. Um, it's online, so people can um, can look at it online and actually um, send questions in to mayor and council. They can come to the meeting on December 3rd um, in council and uh, register to speak and ask questions there. Um, so, I, you know, abs- we're absolutely looking for feedback from the public on this. All right, Councillor Carr, thank you. Well, uh, my pleasure and have a great day. That's Adrian Carr, Vancouver City Councilor, representing the Green Party. I felt it. The moment I walked out the door with the dog early this morning to take him for a walk, I felt, man, the air was a little bit different, a little bit drier. It felt to me like snow was in the air, but I thought, no, 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 that's not possible. It's not that cold yet. And then I went back inside and looked at the forecast, and it turns out there is that ever so slight possibility, depending on where you are on the South Coast, that yes, the S word is in the forecast. So we thought, you know what that means? It means we have to talk to Mark Madriga, Global BC's chief yes. meteorologist, who joins us now. Hi, Mark. Good morning. Oh, I've been waiting. It's been a few weeks since we I had know. some fun here. And now the S word's in the forecast, so I can call you and say, Mark, yeah. what's happening? Yes, you can. Uh, we won't probably talk about snow much after we chat now for the next while, Simi, because we're going into a dry spell for several days ahead, but it will be colder. But more on that in a second. Uh, yeah, we had some... Uh, well, you're right. It was above freezing this morning. It, it was um, too warm, really, for most areas to have any snow stick, although it did stick a bit at some higher elevations. But uh, the air above us is quite chilly. So as things uh, took over through the morning, starting at about... Well, I was here, let's say about 4, 4.15 this morning. Things started to develop in the way of rain showers, and some of them turned to a mix of rain and snow through the morning. And then a band moved from east to west, and now it's just exiting the Vancouver area, headed for Vancouver Island, where they're getting some rain and snow showers on the east side of the island. So we're seeing the end of it now, the, the tail end of those uh, rain and snow showers, at least in Metro Vancouver, as we get a little clearing this afternoon and heading into some chilly weather for the next while. So... Uh, We'll say goodbye to any snow potential and hello to the to the chill in the air for the next uh, five days or so, Simi. What about up on the local mountains, though, Marks? I know they've been kind of hurting for snow. They got some, and and uh, we've been showing some webcams on our uh, on our show on Global News this morning, and uh, you can check that out online too, certainly. But uh, they got a nice little dusting this morning up on the mountains, and they got a dusting. I guess it was yesterday too. So there is some snow up there, and it's cold enough now they can start really making it with uh, Arctic air settling in for the next few days. So good news, there won't be uh, any falling naturally for a while on the North Shore mountains, at least through probably Sunday or or maybe longer. But at least the temperatures will be favorable. They can make lots, and that includes other mountains in the south coast and through the BC interior. So great news there for skiers to get ready for some of those openings in the next while. Now, the the downside here is uh, it is going to get colder, but at least drier and sunnier by day. Now, the Fraser Valley, Howe Sound, southern Gulf Islands especially, and also near Victoria, in the path of really strong outflow winds starting 
if not later today, certainly tonight, overnight through tomorrow and Thursday. And for example, the Fraser Valley, you know how we get those outflow winds coming out of the interior, the cold Arctic winds. Well, they could easily gust 70 to 80 kilometers an hour. yeah, uh, and that's not only chilly, but uh, could be damaging as uh, as that is a really strong outflow wind, and it funnels out of the Fraser Canyon and uh, Harrison Lake and and House Sound and comes down through the Fraser Valley. It doesn't hit Vancouver directly. That outflow wind, some southern suburbs closer to the uh, closer to the border will get it, but uh, really that's a, a big story coming. Not so much any snow left, but the gusty, chilly Arctic winds on the way. And uh, for the BC interior, of course, our listeners and the Kamloops area will get that similar uh, cold wind starting later tonight and through the next couple of days and it funnels down through the Caribou and uh, and into the Thompson Valley so uh, temperatures will slide there too. Kamloops will have a northeast wind about 50 kilometers an hour overnight and tomorrow with a wind chill there tomorrow at minus 16 and cold cold air is going to hold in there for quite a while too Simi. So cold for us though heading into this week so you're saying it's going to be dry but it is still time to get Mm -hmm. the park out well, it is. You're definitely going to feel it if you're in the path of the wind, especially. But even in the city of Vancouver, where there won't be as much wind coming over the next few days, uh, we will have uh, overnight lows oh down to, well, freezing tonight, but colder the next few nights. And by Friday night, Saturday night, uh, probably about minus 5 to minus 6 Maybe even downtown, maybe not quite as much downtown, I suppose, but five minus five minus six, a lot of Metro Vancouver. And in the Fraser Valley, where the wind is going to blow over the next few days and nights as cold feel, that's the wind chill of minus 12, even maybe worse, minus 15 in some of the stronger areas uh, of the stronger winds. So this is the uh, most significant blast of winter so far. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Is it about normal for this time of year? Does this usually happen right around end of November? Yeah, it depends on the year. It can uh, start uh, even earlier than this, but um, we have had more severe outbreaks of uh, of cold air by this time. Uh, I mean, there have been a few. Oh, 1985, I know that's a long way back, but that's one November that was just ridiculously cold for like 10 days. We set a record every day. Uh, so we're not going to break temperature records for the next few days for the cold because of that year 1985 right. that was so severe. But uh, this is certainly going into well below average temperatures over the next few days. So uh, not something we occasionally have, I suppose, but... Uh, first you know, time this uh, year, though. I think first time this season yeah. that we are seeing these temperatures. Excellent point, and that's a bit of a shock to the system. I think that's what it is. (laughs) Yeah, once we get into December, January, this will be nothing, but first one uh, is always pretty tough. That is so true. Mark, thank you so much for that. My pleasure, Sydney. That is Mark Madrigger, our Global VC Chief Meteorologist. That's what it is, right? It's that we have been kind of lulled into thinking that, oh, we're going to have this very mild winter, very mild winter, and then all of a sudden when the cold weather does hit, even though by now we should have had a spell like this already, we're thinking, what just happened? We got very spoiled there for a while. So as you heard Mark describe it, yeah, the cold weather is coming. This next week ahead, uh, heading right into the weekend, it very cold temperatures. We're definitely dipping below zero uh, for those overnight lows as well. So yeah, get out the parka. You won't need it to cover your head unless your head's really cold, but you definitely need to stay warm out there as the temperatures get pretty cold. Well, over the noon hour today, so in about an hour or so, the Finance Minister, Carol James, is going to release the latest quarterly economic figures for the province. And, you know, there have been some kind of warning signs on the horizon with this that concerns about ICBC were going to impact these numbers, that certain revenue generators are kind of softening up. So there are some concerns there. Uh, so they've kind of laid the groundwork for that. But is there good news? Is there bad news? Like, what's going to be there? We thought we'd get a bit of a preview right now. With the help of Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria. Hi, Keith. Good morning, Simi. All right, so let's start with the bad news. I take it there is going to be some of that. Well, the tip-off uh, was uh, in the first quarter uh, financial updates a few months ago that the economy was softening, government revenues were declining, and there's no reason to think that that trend has, won't continue in today's quarterly updates. So we expect... I still think there's going to be a surplus uh, because uh, Carol James has prudently built into her budget, as her previous, uh, as her predecessors did, a pretty healthy uh, what's called a forecast allowance, a cushion in case there's unanticipated drop-off in revenues. That's almost a half billion dollars cushion, but I think a lot of that's going to be used up. 
Uh, and the chief reason, one of the big reasons we're going to be looking for is the continual financial deterioration at ICBC. Uh, David Eby has been quite concerned that the loss of that court case of them being able to limit expert testimony in in, right. um, in claims, that could cost uh, upwards of $400 million. And, and so that would be put against ICBC's bottom line. In the budget, it's supposed to only lose $50 million this year. If you add that $400 million to to that number... Well, that $400 million would almost take up the entire revenue uh, allowance, uh, forecast allowance, the cushion. So that's that's how close to the edge I think Carol Jane's budget is going to be. It's still probably in a surplus situation. John Horgan at the weekend convention here of the NDP on stage said that the budget's balanced. So he obviously knows, I think, he's got some inside information there. So I expect the budget to be balanced, but we're going to be looking at the revenue numbers because uh, it was flagged for us in the first quarter. They've already downgraded the economic growth uh, expectation, which had been 2.4%. Now it's down to 1.7%. Revenues were down $150 million last uh, in the last update, and I expect they're going to be down even further this time. Okay, so do you think there are some like storm clouds then in some certain sectors, and we'll get a bit of a preview of that? Well, forestry is certainly one to right. keep an eye on. Forestry is in crisis. Canfor announcing yesterday shutting down all but one of its sawmills around BC for two weeks, starting uh, December 23rd. Forestry, you know, the the government uh, had anticipated getting more than one point, almost one point two billion dollars in revenues from the forest sector. Hard to see how that's going to happen when you've got all sorts of mill closures for for a sustained period of time, some of them on a permanent basis. So that's one revenue number that I think is going to wobble considerably. Um, other ones, if there's, an, if there's a slowdown in economic growth, that means the um, some of the taxation projections in terms of revenues are likely going to be down as well because people aren't spending as much money. You're not paying as much uh, sales tax because you're purchase, purchasing less goods. Uh, property transfer tax was down uh, ha- almost a half billion dollars last time. It, it, various reports have the housing park market picking up a bit, so perhaps there's a little bit of easing of the pain on that revenue line. Right. But uh, bottom line, this is probably the first quarter update was kind of negative, and this one's probably even a little more negative, but not to the point of turning the budget into a deficit situation. That's that's my that's my guess. Anyway. Right? Is that a big concern, though, Keith? I mean, here we are now, like you know, not quite two years out from an election. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've had this conversation with the Democrats at their convention. Justin Trudeau won two elections, um, and deficits didn't seem to matter to people. I mean, he's promising huge deficits. I do think, though, the NDP, fairly or unfairly, wears the deficit issue in ways that other political parties don't. They're always accused of that's their, their Achilles heel. They ran yeah. a number of deficits in the 90s, although they did balance the books by the end of the decade. Uh, the Liberals ran a whole bunch of deficits early on in their first years in power. People seem to, but see, people seem to forgive them more than they do the NDP when it comes to deficit uh, budgeting. But I still think Carol James is committed to having a balanced budget right up until the next election, and that means uh, she's already searching for more than three hundred million dollars in in savings of, of committed spending. Uh, you know what's called discretionary spending. I'm not sure she's going to be able to find that, but she is subtly cutting some spending programs out there uh, in an effort to ensure that her budget, her budget remains balanced. The big concern the government has, and any government has, if the budget goes into deficit, then the bond rating can be affected. And if your bond rating is affected, yeah. uh, it costs a lot more money to borrow money to pay for infrastructure projects. Both the NDP and the BC Liberals, uh, I think, have rightly want to spend a lot of money building hospitals, roads, bridges, uh, things that people like to use. Those things cost a lot of money. And if your bond uh, rating goes down and the NDP has a triple A bond rating, just as the BC Liberals did, then the cost of borrowing to pay for you know $5 billion worth of projects suddenly becomes very expensive than if you had that triple A in place. Right. Now, what, you mentioned the NDP convention on the weekend there. What was the mood like at that convention? I thought it was uh, pretty positive. Uh, I think they're very comfortable. Uh, I've got a piece out this week that they're they're kind of comfortable at the midway point in their mandate. Uh, there was no real agitation there on the floor. There was no floor fights. Anybody loves to fight with each other at these conventions about right. you know taking on the government on different issues, even when they're in power. There wasn't really a lot of that uh, this time. There are a couple of resolutions that you know went against government policy. Nothing major, though. There was a teachers' protest there, but it was a very polite one. And I didn't get the impression that there was anybody pressing any panic buttons. It was very noticeably different than when they were in opposition. It was sort of a a gathering of frustrated people because they weren't in power. 
now that they're in power, I think there was a sense of satisfaction they've been able to enact some changes, maybe not move as fast as, as people would like on some, but I think there was generally an air of satisfaction that they're in government now and nobody's panicking. And, you know, John Horgan got a, a leadership vote of 94.6%, which is uh, pretty impressive. So I think it was more a loving of Horgan than anything else. Interesting. But no pushback, though, in terms of the types of labor disputes that still haven't been solved. No, that's, uh, again, uh, just a sense that they're in government. There's going to be some hiccups. There's going to be some challenges. Uh, uh, you know, I talked to Harry Baines, the Labour minister. He knows full well what his his powers are under the Labour Code. Nobody wants to speculate about what happens as these talks go south today and the pressure on the government to step in uh, through mediation or some other lever that Harry Baines can, can pull here. Uh, and certainly no discussion of bringing the House back next week for an emergency bill. But uh, again, uh, the t- t- teachers' feet was, it was classic. 300 teachers in attendance in the room next door, all wearing red shirts. I was outside interviewing the BCTF president, Terry Mooring, uh, getting ready to interview her for live at noon on Global. Uh, 40 teachers out there gathered around. And who walks through us all in the middle of it? But Carol James, the finance minister, who's in charge of teacher talks. Not a word was said. Everybody just sort of smiled. Really? And so it was not the confrontation um, that you might expect in, in other uh, circumstances, which I think was reflective of the mood at that, uh, at that convention. All right. Well, we'll find out more over the noon hour. Keith, thank you. I'll be back. All right, let's get you an update on the whole transit strike situation. Hopes are high, very high, that you won't have to deal with a full shutdown tomorrow of the bus and sea bus system or on Thursday or on Friday, because we now know that the two sides are headed back to the bargaining table this afternoon. And they brought in some heavy hitters to help out with this. In fact, the national president of Unifor is going to be attending these negotiations. He's very well known in dealing with a lot of these uh, big stories, the national stories, Jared Diaz. And he is now making his way to the bargaining table to sit down in front of the Coast Mountain Bus Company. So he just had a uh, media scrum with people where he was talking to reporters about this, telling them that the objective today is to find a tentative agreement to avoid the shutdown tomorrow. But if it doesn't happen, then the strike starts at midnight. This is a last result, and I'm saying this, and I'm saying it quite passionately, that we are hoping to find a settlement. We have been working without a collective agreement for the better part of eight months. So for eight months, we've been trying to find a settlement that is fair. For the last three and a half weeks, we have been on a work-to-rule campaign where our, where our drivers have been wearing, you know, blue jeans, t-shirts. We've had overtime banned. We have done everything to try to get attention of those that make the decisions. But when you're in bargaining with, with bus drivers, it's quite difficult because you've got the federal government puts the money in for infrastructure, you've got the provincial governments, you've got the municipal governments, you've got the board of directors, you've got all these players with skin in the game, but yet nobody likes to take ownership of the issue. And herein lies the, pro- uh, herein lies, uh, the, the problem here today. So one of the key issues, and there are several issues as it relates to working conditions and of course salaries. And I think one of our frustrations is that when we talk about parity and we talk about adjustments, you have bus drivers in Toronto that make $2.85 an hour more than drivers here in Vancouver. And so that is a huge problem. We're trying to figure a way that we can start to make some incremental changes and gains. All right, start to make some incremental changes and gains. And again, I'm going to note that change in the language that we've heard over the last 24 hours or so when it comes to that wage parity, which was always a huge issue in the last couple of weeks that we heard uh, that drivers in Vancouver wanted to make what drivers in Toronto made, but now they're saying starting that process, like getting to parity. So that is the Unifor National President, Jerry Diaz. He says a big part of the concern in this dispute is, of course, and we've heard this as well, working conditions. And on that, he believes the two sides are still far apart. So there are a lot of issues that the bargaining committees have been working towards. We've been trying to figure out how people can drive buses for eight hours a day with little or no brakes. With, you know, in some circumstances using porta potties. In some circumstances when we're stopped at terminus. 
even though the times that are used to check the bus to see if people have left any items on the bus, somehow it's credited towards our break times, which makes no sense. I mean, nobody, nobody in any other profession goes to work for eight hours and doesn't get a bona fide period of time of which they can have their lunch. Workers, regardless of your industry, when you want to go to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom. I mean, they're basics. So these are some of the issues, if you can imagine, we're plowing through when we are making some headway, but we're far from there. So issues that people take for granted, your standard of living and your working conditions that you take for granted, they don't take them for granted. So we need to fix these things and we need to fix them today. That is a Unifor national president who is now going to be sitting in on those talks that will be underway in about an hour. I guess a couple hours are going to be heading in there and starting these negotiations. We'll talk about other stories out there today. And there's a really interesting one about an investigation by the privacy commissioners in BC and in Ottawa. And that investigation has found that a company in Victoria called Aggregate IQ, you've probably heard about them, violated Canadian privacy laws when that company used and disclosed the personal information of millions of voters in BC, the United States, and the United Kingdom. So what does this company do? Well, Aggregate IQ provides election-related software and political advertising services. This company has also been linked to Cambridge Analytica. That's a name I'm sure you remember. Company caught up in that global scandal on Facebook involving the micro-targeting of voters in various political campaigns. But we want to talk more about this now with the help of David Shipley, a cybersecurity expert and CEO of Beauceron Security. David, thank you very much for being here. Happy to join you. So companies like Aggregate IQ, how common are they? Well, these kinds of companies that are data brokers gathering more and more information about people from various sources and putting them together in new and novel ways all, all, all over the place. And political campaigns have become incredibly sophisticated. It would shock most people to realize just how much information is being siphoned off about them, collected, used, and then used to potentially manipulate and influence them in some pretty unethical ways. Um, so in the United States, for example, there's more than 3,500 companies registered as data brokers, just to give you a sense for how many people are playing around with our personal information. Like what kind of personal information are we talking about? I think you're right. I think most people would be shocked. So let's explain this to them. Uh, everything. So, for example, let's start off with your web browsing histories. The average person uh, ends up with dozens, if not hundreds, of different little trackers tracking what websites you're visiting, where you're going, what you're searching, etc. And then these uh, types of data are often combined with offline sources, where you shop, how you travel. So, for example, depending on the apps installed in your phone, your GPS information, your friends in the case of Facebook, um, the credit card companies, every transaction you make. It sounds like something thing out of, you know, Enemy of the State, that famous Will Smith movie about yeah. the NSA spying on people. It's real. And what was funny is it wasn't the government that pioneered it. It was companies and the level of surveillance far surpasses a Hollywood movie. So how are they getting this information? all over the place. So they buy it, they trade it. So what's really fun is when you read a lot of um, privacy policies, they'll say they don't sell the information but they trade it. And this is at the heart of what happened with Cambridge Analytica and Aggregate IQ and Facebook. They didn't pay money for it, but they traded something far more valuable, information back and forth. And in that context, you know, different pieces of information gathered from one source might be relatively harmless. My uh, transaction history is on my credit card without my name and identifying information doesn't mean anything. But when you can take that and now combine that with my web uh, browsing history, you now know a hell of a lot about me. Okay, that I think is scary for a lot of people because I don't think we realize that this is actually happening out there. Oh, no. It, it, and, and remember, like Google and Facebook have partnerships with the credit card companies. And then Google, or in this case, Facebook, makes partnerships with sketchy groups um, that work for various political campaigns, you know, including the uh, Donald Trump presidential campaign in 2016 and Brexit. Um, to use social media information to find and target audiences with messages that at best can be described as propaganda, but at worst are, are purely manipulative in nature and designed to pit people against each other and to turn us into voting blocks, right. um, not for the health of our democracy. And this wasn't happening somewhere else. I mean, this company, Aggregate IQ, was right here in Victoria, in BC, so it is happening here. 
it is happening here. Um, and in fact, you know, there, there are lots of really good examples of how the data is being used against us. And what we have to realize, and what's sad about this is that, you know, the, the, I, I really appreciate the BC Privacy Commissioner generating this report, but there's not a heck of a lot new in terms of, yeah, they did it, and they knew they did it. Um, we've seen documentaries out about this, but at the end of the day, not a damn thing's been done about it. No one's gone to jail. No one's been fined. Companies aren't held accountable. And Facebook is still laughing its way to the bank. And so that doesn't stop any other company from setting up shop and doing the same thing. No, it doesn't. And in fact, only British Columbia, only British Columbia has laws in the books that even hold political parties at the provincial level accountable to some level of privacy. Keep in mind, at the federal level, there is no real regulation on political parties. And I'll give you a sense of that. That means that they can have campaign canvassers walk up to your home interview you, gather all kinds of information about your voting intentions, policies, save that in a database, combine that with your browsing history, and target you. And if they lose that information to criminals or others or abuse it, you can't do a thing about it anywhere else else in Canada. Really? So they can actually go that far? They can actually paint your entire profile online and sell that information about you? They can and they do. Um, It would stun most Canadians how sophisticated the political campaigns are getting. Um, And remember, because the politicians make the laws, they have exempted themselves from it. They are literally acting above the law, and our democracy suffers every single day that this continues. So what is the point then of this report then by the privacy commissioners? Well, I think they're they're trying to raise the uh, alarm. But remember, the privacy commissioners are bureaucrats as well. At the end of the day, they report to legislatures and parliament. And so they can't create laws. Um, they can hope to raise the public's attention and, frankly, I think our outrage um, to demand better. Um, and, you know, there is a, a bit of a moral, ethical thing when it comes to politicians in this issue. And I know that's probably a sentence that doesn't make a lot of sense these days. But how can politicians hold Facebook and other companies accountable for commercial abuse of our personal data if they refuse to be accountable for the political abuse of our data? Such a good point. David, listen, thank you for your time on this. You're very welcome. That's David Shipley, cybersecurity expert and CEO of Beaucerin Security, uh, dealing with talking about this report, this investigation out by the Privacy Commissioner of BC and the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, based in Ottawa, that found that that company from Victoria, Aggregate IQ, violated Canadian privacy laws when it used and disclosed the personal information of millions of voters from BC, the United States, and the United Kingdom. There's a new report that is just out over this lunch hour, and it's looking into the factors that led to the overdose death of a 17-year-old boy. Now, he had complex needs. He was moved more than 40 times while in government care, both here in this province and next door in Alberta. So this report was done by the representative for children and youth, Jennifer Charlesworth. So let's find out more about this story and most importantly, what's being done since then. Jennifer Charlesworth joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. Can you tell us about this young man? Yes, I think important to start with the fact that this young man uh, had a very loving family. He was, he loved comic books and superheroes. He was artistic. He was creative. And he had a lot of trauma in his life, lots of instability and lots of difficulties in the early years that set him on a a path that was very difficult for he and his family to cope with. So that's the backdrop to this. And what happened was he moved, was moved to British Columbia from Alberta. He was in care in Alberta. He was moved to British Columbia and went back and forth several times. And what we've understood through our investigation is that there were many missed opportunities, miscommunications that contributed to his uh, fatality later in life. And when you mean missed opportunities and miscommunication between the two different provinces when it came to his case? Yes, exactly. In what ways then? What happened? Well, within Canada, the various provinces and territories have negotiated what's called an interprovincial protocol that is to guide the movement and the planning for children that are receiving services or in guardianship uh, in care in one province as they move into another province. And what we learned here was that the protocol, the conditions and expectations within within the protocol were not fulfilled 
and in many cases, in many situ- in, in, at various points in this child's life. And as a result, because of that lack of follow-through, there was miscommunication or misunderstanding about the kind of care that he needed, the supports that his family required, the planning for the child to meet his unique and complex needs. So that's what I mean by that. That dropped the ball. Is it uh, safe to say he fell through the cracks? Yes, he did. Has anything been done about those cracks, though, since his case? I would say no. My hope is the recommendations that we've put forward will bring this onto the front burner again. And uh, I believe that the minister is actually going to be doing a uh, a release or media availability this afternoon. So you will hear about the determination that her office and her ministry has made. Uh, but no, I would say that we were not confident that changes had happened in the last two years since Romaine passed away, so that's why we're, our recommendations are focused on addressing the interprovincial protocol, the coordination within British Columbia, and the availability of services to support children with high trauma, such as he had. What can and should BC be doing better then to prevent a case like this from happening? Yes. Well, for one, we need to ensure that there is a point person, somebody that provides the overall coordination, really understands what children are here in British Columbia from other provinces and territories, and that British Columbia is accountable to provide some support for, and conversely, children that are from British Columbia that are being placed in other provinces and territories. So, number one, we feel that it's very important to have a coordinator here in British Columbia, and then uh, number Two, uh, thinking more broadly that it's important that the other provinces and territories commit to fulfilling the terms of the interprovincial protocol, enhancing it further to clear up these areas where there's misunderstandings or they haven't fully addressed the issues. So those are two things that BC can provide some leadership on and ensure that there are appropriate services here for that coordination of interprovincial. Taking a step back, though, the other thing that became really clear in this is that this was a young person who needed specialized residential resources. This has been spoken about many times before, including by the Auditor General's report was released several months ago. And that's another key thing that we think the Ministry of Children and Family Development needs to put care and attention to. They are working on it, and we're just really reinforcing how critically important it is that appropriate resources are available for kids with complex needs. And I was reading through the report, and I tell you, every time I read one of these reports, it just breaks my heart. Even the, the very first line you started with in this, it says, when he, when he was just 11 years old, he told social workers that it felt as though he had been, quote, passed around for 20 million years. He was just yeah. 11. Yes. He was just 11, exactly. He'd already experienced so much. And I appreciate you saying that these cases really break your heart, and they should. We should feel something about these kids and be called into doing better. And this was a child, too. Now, this is it's beyond my scope to speak about Alberta's practice, of course. But uh, at 11 years old, he'd also been placed in secure care in Alberta. He'd been in and out there for eight times. And this is when the child's right to move freely is taken away. They're basically incarcerated. That's an 11-year-old. So yeah, the feeling that he has that he'd been passed around for 20 million years. And another part of that quote is that he felt that there really wasn't any reason for him to live. As an 11-year-old, that's pretty tragic. We need to do better. The other problem with this is that we do cover, we talk about these stories, you know, where every time there's a report out. And I think people get this sense of hopelessness sometimes because they feel like nothing's ever getting better. Like, are we Mm. making a difference? (laughs) Yes, that's a question I often get as well. Is there really any kind of difference? What is going to be um, uh, better this time as a result of this? I continue to have hope and confidence that 
the recommendations that we're putting forward will continue to influence the system and it will get better. There will always be situations in which that we haven't anticipated or we haven't uh, fully understood how we could respond to that, those kinds of highly complex situations. But there is a lot that can be done at the very basic foundational level to improve our system. And I have to remain hopeful that action will be taken Right. What, what do you want to hear then from the minister on this? Like, what are the words that you need to hear to make this better? I would like to hear from her that she too, much as you have said, is affected and feels for this child and this child's family and what they went through. So that empathy is important. And then beyond that, that responsiveness accepting the recommendations, saying we will act on these, we will move forward, we will improve where we can, wherever we can, and that we will do our level best to build a system of care that would support kids in these situations. We would hope so. Thank you very much for your time on this today. Thank you very much, Simi. That is Jennifer Charlesworth, BC's representative for children and youth, out with her latest report, this one that takes a look at the overdose death of a 17-year-old boy. Earlier in the show, we were telling you that we're about to get an update, an economic update on the state of BC's economy from Finance Minister Carol James. And so we previewed that with Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria, Keith Baldry. Well, we now have the numbers. So we thought, let's check back in with Keith and find out how things are looking. Hi, Keith. Hey, Timmy. Okay, so how does it look? Pretty well uh, how we discussed it, that there was going to be a slight deterioration in some of the revenue numbers. And so the surplus has been downgraded. Uh, about $30 million to coming in at $148 million. So still a surplus, as we had predicted, albeit a smaller one. Um, Interestingly enough, what is not reflected in this, and the document makes it very clear, ICBC is still not in this thing in terms of the impact of that court ruling, which some estimates could cost the corporation more than $400 million. So if you add that into this, uh, because Carol James has built in a a pretty hefty half-billion-dollar forecast allowance, that would not be enough to send this into uh, to deficit. So the bottom line, a very minor surplus, but a surplus nevertheless. But the, all, most of the arrows are going in the wrong direction. Revenues are down. Uh, natural resource revenue in particular down. Crown, Corp- uh, Crown Corporation revenue is down. Little indi- uh, economic indicators that are important. For example, BC is very much an export province. Yeah. And exports are down 6% after, for the first time in a long time. That's a sign, again, of the worsening situation in the forestry, forestry in- industry. The forest revenues are down significantly. Um, but I don't get the sense that Carol James is pressing any panic buttons here. The economy is still sticking to her economic growth forecast of 1.7%, which is down... Uh, a full third from um, from the from the budget. Everybody's downgrading their economic growth forecast. So still fairly stable numbers, um, not overly healthy, but certainly not very dismal because the surplus is a surplus, and that's good right. news. So you mentioned the ICBC thing that they're not going to factor that in right away. But what's the plan for it? What are they going to do with it? Well, it, we still haven't had a full explanation of why they come up, what, why it would cost f- more than $400 million uh, in terms of expert witness testimony. And one of the explanations we got is that is actually a figure that represents the amount over 10 years. But the way accounting works, it may have to be all booked in one year. And if it's booked into one year, that means the current year. And that means a you have to apply that $400 million loss against the bottom line. And so it would take the... the it wouldn't affect the surplus because, as I say, Carol James has a big revenue, uh, a, a, um, uh, revenue uh, forecast allowance of, uh, of uh, I guess, about a half billion dollars, which is which more than make up for that loss at ICBC. So because of that forecast allowance, it's to guard against unanticipated disasters, which this ICBC thing could qualify as one. And that would protect her budget from tipping into deficit. So not nothing overly alarming in today's uh, presentation, but nothing overly right. uh, healthy either, because the numbers suggest that things are getting a little tight out there in the economy. Uh, but the good news is a slight improvement in the housing situation. And more houses are being built, and um, the huge loss they had in the property transfer tax is starting to ease somewhat. There's, because more houses are on the market and are actually selling now, 
the pressure on there in terms of having less property transfer tax be paid is easing. And so that bottom line is improving a bit as well. That's interesting because in years past, I seem to remember that was really a huge engine for the provincial budget. Oh, yeah. No, we're talking, it was approaching $2 billion in terms of revenue. It's now down well more than a half billion dollars because of the slowdown. But as we've seen stories suggest, there's some, of the, some of the markets are starting to pick up a bit. A few more houses are on the market. They're not necessarily selling at the huge prices that they were selling a while ago, but there's more activity now, and that's softening the blow. I mean, the property transfer tax is never going to disappear out of the government's budget, I can tell you that, because it does present a huge area of revenue. And once a government gets its its hands on revenue, yeah. it's loath to give it up unless they can find another tax to replace it. And just very quickly, you mentioned ICBC there. When you take that, when you factor the legal decision out of it, how else is ICBC looking? David Eby a couple of weeks ago had said he felt they were on track to pretty much break even. Yeah, they, they, um, it had been projected to have a $50 million loss this year, which would mean getting rid of more than $1.1 billion in losses in a relatively short period of time. Now there's a, a bit of good news that that, that loss may be, if, again, putting aside the court judgment, that lot, loss may be wiped out and they may actually be able to come in with a, with a tiny uh, surplus. So it's, uh, it's not necessarily terrible news at ICBC, but it's, uh, it's not, certainly not good either. So it's, they're on track to make some improvements, but um, the big worry uh, out there is the impact of this court ruling. And David Eby also points out he's being challenged on a couple of other rulings as well, which is a, a cap on soft tissue injury, injuries. If, he lose, if ICBC loses all the court challenges, that basically puts another billion-dollar-plus hit on the books. And right. in David Eby's words, he uses the word catastrophic. And that certainly would have that impact, and that would turn this surplus into a big deficit. But we're not there yet. We're certainly not there yet. All right, Keith, thank you. Okay. That is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria. You can catch him, of course, on BC1N on the NewsHour tonight. People are starting to understand that what's going to happen tonight at midnight is real. This isn't a bluff. So this is about finding a settlement, and that's why we're here today. That is the National Uniform President, Jerry Diaz, who is joining the talks today to hopefully, fingers crossed, find some kind of last-minute settlement to avoid that full-scale walkout and job action by bus drivers and sea bus operators that is supposed to take effect at midnight tonight, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week. So this hour, actually, the TransLink CEO, Kevin Desmond, is actually meeting face-to-face with the Unifor National President. Now, that kind of takes these talks to a new level. Up until now, we've heard, oh, it's Coast Mountain Bus Company, it's not TransLink, but now TransLink CEO is there. So is the national president of Unifor, not just their Western representative, Gavin McGarrigal. So this all comes as talks are set to resume between the two sides at two o'clock today. So in about an hour and a half from now. And of course, we've got our Jenna Brown camped out outside there, watching it all happening and unfold. We'll be checking in with her as well. She'll be there all afternoon and into the evening, into the night, if need be, to find out what's going on there. In the meantime, though, many people are saying, please, please just get this done. Commuters in Metro Vancouver's students who have to get to UBC or SFU or whatever institution they have to get to, everyone is kind of bracing themselves for the potential impact of that shutdown of the bus and C-bus network. And not just employees, and their, but their bosses as well, who are trying to figure out what this means. How do they keep their businesses open? How do they even operate? That's what we wanted to talk more about now with the help of our next guest, Muriel Protzer, who's a policy analyst for BC and Alberta at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Muriel, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having CFIB on today. Well, what do you think the impact could be, potentially, the economic impact of this shutdown this week if it goes ahead? Yeah, local businesses rely heavily on public transit to get those customers in their doors. And with the transit strike set to start, they're certainly worried about how this is going to impact their revenues. November is one of the busiest months for retail businesses, especially as customers are gearing up for the holidays. You know, we have Cyber Monday deals, Black Friday deals already have started. And it certainly isn't helping our local businesses. Uh, These deals online, coupled with the transit strike that is looming above us right now are very likely to persuade shoppers to choose those online options, uh, especially faced with that difficulty, right, even just getting to those stores. And unfortunately, our small businesses in BC, over half of them don't even sell online. Uh, so it's going to be a real struggle for them uh, trying to get those revenues up for the holiday season. Right. So this is, would you say this is normally the time of year that they can count on a little boost? 
Yeah, absolutely. This is the time of year where our small businesses rely on those customers to keep them afloat. Our small businesses, they operate on very thin margins. Um, and so they, they really do rely on getting those customers in the door. Half, over half of our BC retailers say online big business competition like Amazon will be a huge challenge for them over the next three years. And I mean, we're seeing that today, right? As we'll have less people being able to get on the streets, get to those small businesses, uh, certainly a challenge for them. Yeah. What do small businesses tell you then in general about what they're afraid of? Well, they're afraid, uh, first and foremost, how are they going to get that customer in the door, get that purchase, especially for the holiday season? They've got lots of competition with the online deals. But secondly, how are they even going to get their employees to work, make sure that they can show up for their shifts? Uh, While there are some public transportations that have been uh, listed as available and some expanded services, it's simply just a Band-Aid on a much bigger wound. We really can't expect these transit lines to have significant delays, more passengers than normal. So this means delays for small businesses. Maybe their employees aren't showing up for their shifts on time. Maybe some can't even get into work at all. Uh, So how can you run your business without your employees? They're the most vital part of running a business. So uh, we're hearing from small businesses, they're having to work hard to make those arrangements with employees to make sure they can get uh, into their shop on time um, and show up without having to deal with uh, all these uh, problems that they're going to face just getting transit. I guess there's, there's no choice on that, right? Because this is such a tight labor market as well. Oh, absolutely. Right now, um, the shortage of labor is a huge issue for small businesses. Um, Over 70% of them indicating that they're having troubles, first and foremost, just getting enough resumes in their door. And secondly, finding employees who are a good fit, who work well with the team and can commit to those jobs. Um, So on top of those problems that they're facing with the labor market, now we have the transit strike showing up. They probably have uh, very few employees that they're having to rely on to show up for those shifts. So there's definitely concerned from our local businesses how this is going to impact them. All right, Muriel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having CFIB. That is Muriel Protzer, Policy Analyst for BC and Alberta at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Let's find out in particular about a local business that is really having to go above and beyond to essentially stay in business during a potential transit strike. And joining us now is our contributor, Claire Allen. Hi. Hi, Um, Yeah, so... And both sides of Metro Vancouver transit strike will resume talks in a few hours in the hopes of avoiding a system-wide bus strike. So if a new deal isn't reached by tonight, there will be no bus or C-bus service tomorrow through Friday. That is so stressful for people, though. I was thinking mm-hmm. about your student, employee, employer, no matter what. You're just sitting there waiting, going, how am I going to get to work or school? Right. You really can't make any plans no. yet. You just kind of have to think about worst case scenario, and hopefully that doesn't happen. However, as we just heard from uh, CFIB there, the strike could really impact local businesses. And I wanted to learn more about what that impact would look like. like what are employers and right. employees planning to do? So I spoke with a local franchise owner about what he is expecting. My name is Bobby Lojum, and I own two freshies, one in Richmond and one in uh, Vancouver by Main and Broadway. I opened the Richmond one in November 2017, so it's been two years, and I've opened the Vancouver store for just over nine months, so in February it will be a year. So a lot of our employees uh, happen to be international students, and a lot of them live in Surrey. So one of the employees came in yesterday and notified me that, hey, Bobby, the, one of the bus drivers told me that the buses won't be running for three days. And unfortunately, they don't have a lot of family here, so they have to rely on transit to get to work from all the way from Surrey. So I, I pretty much panicked because I rely on these employees to run my business. And uh, I just talked to them over the day, and we had to figure out a plan where... I couldn't rely on taxi because these girls only work like about four to six hour shifts, so they can't pay for a taxi, so it's not worth it for them to come down. On the other hand, they wanted to cab it to the SkyTrain and then SkyTrain it down, then I would have to pick them up or they would have to cab it to the store. But, I mean, if you have three days of strike, I don't know how available the taxis are going to be. So in that case, I decided to go pick them up. So tomorrow morning, I'm going to be heading to Surrey, and back probably around seven o'clock because I have to beat traffic, and then at night um, probably drop them off as well. How many trips do you think you'll be making to Surrey tomorrow, and possibly on Thursday and Friday per day? So my goal is to try to get them at least two tomorrow because I told them I will 
uh, drop, pick them up and drop them off. And then Thursday, Friday, I'm trying to get them. I have to pick them up at least Thursday and Friday morning. But I'm hoping that in the evening I can get them to taxi it from here after work to the, I think it's commercial Broadway station. And from there, they'll be able to sky train it and then cab it. So whatever the bill is, I'll have to pay for it. Okay, so that is a local franchise owner. Uh, does he understand that good luck getting a cab on a, the best of days? That is something we talked about while I was there is that you are, unfortunately, our taxi system is not a, a exactly reliable or plentiful yeah <laughs> for that matter uh, and so i asked bobby um how much time he anticipates this this to add to his day yeah wednesday so for example let's say tomorrow however long it takes it takes me at least what 35 40 minutes depending on where they live um heading to surrey and then back and then usually i'm off around like 4 30 and what i have to do is i have to leave and then i have to come back 8.50 when the store closes and then head back to Surrey to drop them off and come back. Same thing on Thursday, right? And same thing on Friday. So that's probably what, let's just say 40 minutes one way, 40 minutes, that hour and 20 minutes. And then another same thing on Thursday morning and same thing on uh, Friday morning. And this is just, Claire, one business owner out of many businesses who have to deal with this issue of how their employees are going to get to work. Yeah, exactly. Because of what Bobby talked about, you know, the buses aren't there. A lot of people may not live that close to a SkyTrain line, and it's going to be very difficult for him to get his employees there. And so... As we've been reporting all day, if a new deal isn't reached by midnight tonight, there will be no bus or sea bus service tomorrow through Friday. Bobby told me he's really hoping that doesn't happen. Like if this continues on, like how does that, like how do you run a business? I rely on these people, you know, especially these small businesses and these quick service restaurants. Majority of them, if you go anywhere, there tend to be a lot of students, right? You have one or two full-time employees that live probably locally. But for the most part, it's hard to find employees locally. So you have to get them wherever you can. Transit is a big, like a lot of these girls come, they come alone. They're 18 years old, 19 years old, and they they can't afford cars. They can't afford insurance, and they don't have any family they don't they can't rely on literally i've seen this over the last two years running both my businesses is that they even when they have to run late sometimes they get 15 minutes late or on sunday the bus doesn't run properly so it's the first time that i've came to realize how much transit pays a big part like especially with quick service businesses well i think his story is going to be played out at business after business after business and i'm guessing that some of those employees just aren't going to show up because they can't Yeah, and I really have to applaud Bobby for going above and beyond for his employees to actually drive out to Surrey multiple times a day. He uh, lives in Vancouver. So for him to do that and come back after the, you know, after he's done and he comes at the end of the end of the day to pick up his employees and drive them out. I think, you know, that's a great boss and that's a wonderful story. Not sure if other businesses can do that. Yeah. And so it's going to be very difficult for small businesses, small business owners to help their employees get to and from work and to operate during this strike if it happens. And he's also basing his times on what it would talk like be today if he had to make that drive. Yeah. But Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week with thousands of more cars on the road, if there is this strike... It's going to be a very different situation. Yeah, congestion could be a lot worse. You're yeah. right, Sammy. And so I'm really hoping that um, I can talk to, if, you know, if the strike goes ahead, which we're hoping they can reach a deal, but if the strike does go ahead, I'm hoping to chat with Bobby some more just to really see the impact of the strike on his business and just to learn more about how he's managing his day no with this, these new added responsibilities. All right, Claire, thank you. Thanks, Sammy. That is Claire Allen, our show contributor, talking about one local business and how the owner is planning to make do. And it's essentially by picking up employees out in Surrey, bringing them into Vancouver for the job, and then taking them back home at the end of the day a couple times a day. We're going to talk about a new campaign that is being launched today called Hands Off. It's a partnership between Vancouver Police, Metro Vancouver Transit Police, and Bar Watch. It's all about shining a light on sexual harassment in the service industry. So why do we need this? What's been happening? Well, joining us now is Kendra Belsham, a spokesperson for the Bar Watch program. Kendra, thanks for joining us. Hey, no problem. Tell me a bit about this program. What's going on? Well, the uh, the Bar Watch program in general, we started in 2007, and the whole goal of it was to prevent criminals, violent people, and gang members and keep them out of the bars on the entertainment district to provide some safety for the patrons. Right. Now, that creates a great platform for something like Hands Off, which is um, a coalition between the VPD and the Metro Transit Police and Bar Watch. Essentially, going to draw attention to um, groping, 
you know, fondling, grabbing, and make people realize that it actually is a sexual assault and not just a, you know, bar-related humor. Is that usually what happens, do you think? Like, when it does happen, do people go, no, you're just being too sensitive. It's just, you know, we're having a good time. Often, often. And um, what we will do at this point as a Bar Watch member and the other Bar Watch members is if you, uh, let's say a server gets assaulted from a patron, so they'll remove that patron and they will add them to the master list and refuse entry for numerous bars in the Grand Ball Entertainment District for a significant period of time. Oh, that's interesting. So that's what this new hands-off program is going to do then. So if you're accused of doing this, people see you doing it, they're just going to kick you out. Yeah, we'll kick you out and you'll have a hard time getting back in. It's really to draw attention to the fact that it is actually a sexual assault. That's how the VPD and the Metro Transit Police put it today. That, you know, just because it's fondling or groping or grabbing, it is a serious offense and they want to take it seriously. So Bar Watch is just one side of it. Um, it's also for the Metro Transit Police. So if you're on a, riding a SkyTrain or whatever, and they're encouraging people to report this behavior to the VPD. So could you put this into perspective for us, Kendra? Like how often do bars have to deal with this? It's been a common problem for a very long time. Um, I personally think that this whole Me Too movement and advances in that direction has really opened us, opened up a nice opportunity to put this on the table and have people understand that it is an ongoing problem, not just in bars and restaurants, but also on the sea bus or the SkyTrain. Um, and it does happen. It happens to staff members. It happens to patrons. Um, and it's more common than you would think. Really? So do people just use alcohol as a, like blame alcohol and say that's the problem? Yeah, a hundred percent. So what do you and do? It can get fairly dangerous. It can get very dangerous for the staff member or the patron as well. Um, you know, there's situations where, um, you know, a gentleman or, I mean, even this can happen to men or women, but situations where a female gets approached or a server gets approached in a bar, you know, and if it's not dealt with properly, that person of interest could be in the parking lot waiting for them when they finish their shift, right? Oh, yeah, that sounds really scary then. So then how do you, how does this campaign help with situations like that? Well, it's going to do the best we can to keep those people out of the Granville Entertainment District and um, further promote the safety of our patrons. So uh, this, in the establishments. So yeah, so this information is going to be shared then with other bars and establishments? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so that's if you do it at one place, then you're going to run into trouble everywhere. Yeah, the BarWatch platform is a really great platform to be able to manage this kind of issue. Now, when is this going to start? Well, I mean, really starting effective now. It's always been effective. Uh, we're just putting a uh, spotlight on it at this point in time with our partnership with the VPD and Metro Transit Police. Now, Kendra, will there be like an education component to this? Will there be a time when you're educating people first or is it going to take effect right away? No, it'll take effect right away. Um, it's just, it's always taken effect. Right. We're just spotlighting it. So you've always been able to call the VPD and report a uh, sexual assault of any kind. And uh, we're gonna, they're going to continue to do that. And they want everybody to call in with these issues because they want to deal with them. Have you heard of another program like this? Personally, no. Um, the Bar Watch program is a very unique one. Um, but we've had a lot of success in our goals. And I really hope we also have success with this one as well. I don't see any reason why we wouldn't. But it's really to remind people out there that this is a sexual offense. Anything unwanted is considered a sexual offense. And uh, we look forward to providing a safer establishment for our patrons in right. the Granville Entertainment District. So this weekend, then, it's going to be a bit of a different weekend if something like this starts happening. You know what? I don't. I hope it won't be. <laughs> I hope people are on their best behavior. But, you know, it will shine a light on it. And um, all the Bar Watch members have uh, gotten involved with this. And we will stay close to the VPD and make sure people are reporting assaults. So if this happens to somebody, then, Kendra, are there steps that they have to follow? Do they just have to tell a staff member? Like, how does this work? Exactly. Tell a bouncer, a staff member, um, a manager, um, anybody who's got any kind of authority within the venue. And uh, they will get you to the right place. Interesting. And the VPD would like you to call them personally. Right, so that you could take it another level. Yeah, so if anything happens, regardless of when, where, how, call the VPD. All right, Kendra, thank you very much for that. No problem. Thanks for having me. That is Kendra Belsham, spokesperson for the Bar Watch program. So they had this announcement, this press conference today with the Vancouver Police, with Metro Vancouver Transit Police and Bar Watch all together announcing this new program, and it's called Hands Off.